Happy St. Patty's Day, Leon. Well, happy St. Patty's Day to you, Danny. Did you enjoy yourself today? Not like I wanted to. Wear some green. I got green on. Made sure that the daughter had green on because nobody's pinching my daughter. Well I didn't have my kegs and eggs, though. I guess that's oh, what... Oh, oh, oh. Your favorite. Over 40. Just, they don't exist anymore, I guess. So sad. So <laughs> sad. Did you? No. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, guess what? Mm. We are without our vice host again tonight. Mr. Jones cannot make it. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go. Welcome to the Bottle of Brown podcast. I am your host, Danny Paul. Joining me in the Bob Media Studios is the Baron of Bourbon himself, the region of rage, the oligarch of Orange County, Leon Coventry, ladies and gentlemen. Well, thank you, Danny. Although I don't want to be an oligarch right now. Aren't they getting all their assets frozen? And uh, I don't know that I want to be a part of that. You are live under the orange curtain with spas <laughs> and smokers and... Play golf every day. I don't know, sir. I think you're living the high life. Oh, I hope the sanctions don't affect me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so as well. Happy St. Patty's Day, you Happy St. Patty's Day. You're Irish, right? The Blarney Stone. That's right. Grandmother's maiden name is McGurn. Yeah, there you We're go. We're from the south side by County Cork. Mm. What I love Aye. is whenever Ireland or uh, native Irish people refer to their island, the way their brogue works is it's not Ireland, it's Ireland. And I love that because they're basically saying, yeah, it's ours. Yeah. It's Ireland. I, lo- I love that. Yeah. Today's the only day I get to be uh, Irish. So I'm married Embrace into it. Irish. Embrace yeah. it. Yeah. You're Irish by injection. There you go. <laughs> we don't have barbecues in Ireland, as Colin Farrell says. Right, but I, I love whiskey and potatoes, so they're good people. Whiskey is indeed something of Irish heritage. Speaking of which, what's your brine tonight, sir? Uh, in the spirit of this wonderful day, no, I did not go with an Irish whiskey. Ooh. I went with a bourbon surprise, surprise. called Kentucky Owl. Oh, that's the St. Paddy's version. The St. Paddy's Day by Louis McGuain. Irish whiskey bonder made it in partnership with Kentucky owl. It is a limited release. It was, it is absolutely delicious. And I'm going to be heartbroken if we can't find another bottle of this. Fancy. It's well a done, bright sir. green bottle by, oh, I didn't do it. You know, triple B is the one that finds no, this stuff. Triple B friend of the show. Yeah. How about you? What are you having tonight on this so- fine Irish? I thought mm-hmm. about, because I know you were looking at Kentucky Owl, and I know it was one of your finalists, and so I thought maybe I could try and find some Kentucky Owl, but I couldn't find your special St. Paddy's Day version. So I went down and I found something else, and what I found was Dunville's, which mm. is Three Crowns Blended Irish Whiskey with a sherry finish. Now, there's a rub here for those of you. For those of you at the Bobs that are listening at home, you're going to catch me here because it's Dunville's from Belfast. Belfast is technically North Ireland, 
And anybody knows that the North Irish usually wear orange during St. Patrick's Day because they don't celebrate the same way the mainland Irish do. But here's the rub. It is distilled in Belfast, and it is a Belfast blend. However, it is produced, packaged, and distributed from Ireland proper. Mm. So we got a little bit of cross-border action going on. So I think I would, in the spirit of community, since we got a war going on in the European continent, I wanted to do a North Ireland and Ireland to make peace. Hmm. And so here we are. I think that beautifully done, Danny. Beautifully Three done. Crowns blended Irish whiskey, sherry finish, Dunville produce of Ireland. How's it taste? Hmm. Mm. It's very light, as you can see. It's not. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not. Uh, if I bring it back by me. No. There we go. See. Very light. Very light mm-hmm. color to it. It's not very dark at all. But it's good. It's got that sherry finish. It's got a nice little sweetness to it. It's good times. They say there's uh, notes of caramel and vanilla and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, the conjoining of the North Irish and Irish excuse that I just came up with at the last minute rolls very well into our next segment as we talk about one of the great wars of the land of the brown. And with that, let's talk about brown. How you doing? Whiskey and whiskey. This is the darkest brown you got. Yeah. Say, Holmes, uh, where they hiding the scotch? What about, um, brown? That's code for bourbon. Great stuff, this bourbon. Comes from a land called Kentucky. Talk about brown. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. Scotch? Oh, yes, I, I think so. Could I have one more of these with some booze in it, please? Before we get into our talk about brown segment, I have something that I wanted to share with you, Leon, and that is a little fun fact here. First St. Patrick's Day parade was held March 17th, 1601. Also fun fact, it wasn't held in Ireland. I was going to say, where was it? It was held here. Mm. In what is now St. Augustine, Florida. And so while we normally disperse the great state of Florida on this show, this is one of those opportunities where we go, well done, boys. The first St. Patty's Day parade was held in what is now known as St. Augustine, Florida, Spanish colony under the direction of the colony's Irish vicar, Ricardo Artur. More than a century later, homesick Irish soldiers serving in the English military marched in Boston in 1737 and New York City in March 1762. St. Augustine, home of the um, Hall of Fame of Golf, where oh, Tiger was just shit. inducted last week. Oh, yeah, that's where TPC golf. Sawgrass is. Yeah. Golf is, ah, Sawgrass. Love Sawgrass. Mm-hmm. Golf is a friend of the show. Anyway, that's the first St. Patty's Day Parade. Let's get on to talk about Brown, which is the tale of two buds. The centuries-old feud between American Budweiser and Czech Budweiser. This comes to us from melmagazine.com. As always, we put the links to these articles in the show notes if you want to follow along at home. I just got a note here from Mr. Jones. He should be logging on momentarily, so he will join us in the midst. There we need to actually, demote him. How do you demote somebody? Can, what, do, what do we call him then? Do we call oh, He's on probation. He's on probation. He's double secret. Super secret double probation. <laughs> double secret probation, vice host Mr. Jones. 
So this is an interesting one because um, Mr. Jones will attest once he finally logs in as we actually went to the Czech Republic as part of a trip we took when we were like 25 to go on a, on a rail so pass jolly. through Europe. And we ended up in Prague. And one of the things we got was a Budweiser, but it wasn't Budweiser, it was Budvar. Mm-hmm. And what I found out later is there's quite a war brewing between the old country and the new country. <clears throat> so the article begins, there are actually a couple different Budweisers, the American version and the Czech version that inspired it. But the world is clearly not big enough for the both of them as they've been fighting over the name for a hundred years. Depending on where you're reading this, you may not know that there are two different Budweisers. If you're in the U.S., you'll be imagining the watery-tasting American Budweiser with its dark brown bottle. <laughs> nice description. <laughs> silver and red label, blue sans serif name plastered across the front. If you're in most of Europe, however, you'll probably be picturing a light green bottle wrapped in a cream label with a red sans serif name over it that reads Budweiser Budvar. And if you're thinking of the latter, you'll likely be hankering after its creamy, malty, Delicious taste. And that is true. I remember liking it very much and saying to myself, this is not a Budweiser. This is bullshit. But then again, it's good stuff. Wherever you are, you'll likely know of each beer, but not by their original names. In most of Europe, American Budweiser goes by the name Bud. And in North America, Budweiser, Budvar, goes by the name Czechvar. <laughs> in the UK, where the author is, they're both called Budweiser. As you may have guessed, there's a big fight raging about it all, which has been going on for over a hundred years. All started in the 13th century when the king of Bohemia, now known as the Czech Republic, granted the city of Česka Budjevoce, I'm sure I'm getting that well right. Well done, well done. Which translates to Budweiser in Germany, the rights to brew beer. It called its brewery Budweiser Beer, meaning simply beer from Budweiser, which is the right to brew beer. 1795, another brewery was set up by the city's German-speaking citizens, this time called Budweiser Burgerbrau. This brewery started shipping its beer to the United States in 1875, which brings us to Adolphus Busch, mm. co-founder of Americans, Budweiser-owned Anheuser-Busch, visited Bohemia, found himself enthralled by the beer and its brewing process, so he took the name and the process and started brewing his own beer in the United States called simply Budweiser. Bush even admitted his intent to copy the original beer in a New York district court in 1896. The idea was simply to brew a beer similar in quality, color, flavor, and taste to the beer that made it Budweiss. So. Well, it sounds like he didn't do that. What do we think you of said this? that it's a much different drink. I, I personally don't think Budweiser is anything near the Budvar that we had in Prague. Jay, what do you think since you're just joining us now? Not the same. It's more European style, but I mean, it's still a pills. I mean, it is what it is. I think it's the American Budweiser's not, it's not the same beer, but I mean. I also don't think Budweiser is the Budweiser that we remember from our youth. It's true. I think the the Budweiser we have now has got that drinkability bullshit, which is just means they add sugar or some sugar substitute. Hmm. I always say our palate has changed. When I think of classic Budweiser, I think of right now, I think of Modelo Especial. That to me tastes like what I remember Budweiser tasting like. Oh, good call. I I had some on uh front of the show Q's birthday. He had a bunch of Modelo Especial mm-hmm. and it was I don't remember it being that good, but it was it was awesome. I don't I don't drink that much beer these days. Yep. 
Yeah, that's uh look, hey. Because if you think about it, the number of Mexican Americans that drink regular Budweiser, it's up there. Like that's one of their favorites. So it makes sense that Modelo Especial would be close. I think that all of this is a really great marketing ploy for both teams. Mm -hmm. I think it means nothing. I think Budweiser is a very generic thing to call a beer based on where they came from and based on the description you gave us. I think that, uh, you know, when people think of America, whether or not we like it or not, they think of apple pie and Budweiser and a hot dog. And I don't know why. I don't know why that became the American beer. You know, I'm <laughs> a, big, a big fan of the Coors family. And I think that that's a better representation of, of American beer. But that's right. Did they steal a German uh, beer? I don't frost know. brewed. <laughs> Either way, I, I don't understand their advertising. It's cold. Yeah. Well, you know, anything can be cold. That's not a. That's nothing. No, but it's super cold. It's cold like a train. It's cold. Yeah, but they got Sam Elliott. So cold. Ross yeah. Brew Coors. Mountains are blue. It's cold. It's cold. Yeah, but you anything have, can be cold. You gotta have a Put deep the refrigerator. Deep voice cowboy with a burly mustache covering his upper lip. You do it. That reminds me of basically okay, uh, Spinal Tap, or but it goes to eleven. To eleven. <laughs> <laughs> It's exactly. That's absolutely right. But absolutely it gives right. you a little bit extra. But the mountains oh. are blue. Yeah, but you could just you could just it, get it's a blue cold. Sharpie. No, we're not going to do that. But it's cold. It's colder. So it's a little colder. <laughs> but the mountains yeah, who are needs blue. The, who needs the visual cue? But you know, hey, we all fell for it in the marketing ploy, and so be it. But I think uh, either way, I love it. I love the rivalry. I. I've always, I've never heard the story told the way you just told it, but I've, I have heard the story that Budweiser was stolen from Czech, uh, the Czech Republic or somewhere in that region. And, you know, Hey, that's how it goes sometimes, but it doesn't sound like it's even close to the same recipe. It was just kind of imitating that style of beer, which is, you know, for lack of a better term, Pilsner, right? So it's, that's just, they just made a Pilsner beer called a Budweiser. Americans drink it up. Well, what I, I love is that the the kingdom of Bohemia incorporates areas of southern Germany and what is now referred to as the Czech Republic. So you have kind of a cross cultural, cross border thing going on. But the idea mm -hmm. that it is it is Budweiser and the guy that started Anheuser Busch, which is now long gone because it's like what AB and Bev now. You don't even have the Anheuser Busch name anymore. He was a patent troll. He patented it. And then before the Germans had any idea what was going on, they realized they couldn't sell their own beer north of Panama. Mm. I wish that Budweiser would embrace the nickname they've been given, which is Bud Heavy. You know? <laughs> I mean, I get it. It's not great for marketing, but it's Bud Heavy or it's Bud Light. Bud Heavy and it's Bud Light. I get it. Yeah. You know what? I'm for it. There you go. Let's just be honest about it and uh, call it Bud Heavy. I don't know. They, they, on account of the number of uh, colleagues of Mexican descent, hey, Budweiser. <laughs> and they always drink it in the can. Always Budweiser in a can, never in a bottle. Well, that's where Tecate comes from. You know? Oh, that's right. Tecate. Which my, my roommate in college just yeah, really yeah. enjoyed. God bless she her. She liked all things Mexican, right? <laughs> Hopefully she doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> Another talk show. Another talk show. <laughs> that is uh, talk about Brown. Mr. Jobs, thank you for joining us. 
What's your brand tonight, sir? I have two. I guess uh, I, I assume Leon opened with what he was having tonight, right? Mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I'm having this now, and then I think I'm going to go over to the Teeling Whiskey Black Pits. Okay, uh, you say this. You say this, but this is an audio show. What is this that yeah, you were I'm telling you? It's the, the Teeling folks at home. No, the first one. Oh, well, that's the Kentucky Owl that was done as a uh, St. Patrick's right. edition mm. with the... Uh, See? I should have uh, got it. Then we could be trend triplets. Yeah, it would have been nice. Um, well, it's I figured Costco. you went into it, Leon. Oh, yeah. It's it's half gone. That's good. <laughs> Jesus. Well, all right. The next time you walk into Safeway and you see bottles of Weller, get your minimum and go back in and get your minimum. Then go back in and get my minimum. Okay, I'm missing out on all this good hooch. Oh, I, oh. I'm going to start. I'm going to have a uh, a Danny stockpile and I'm going to keep it here as a carrot for one day. You'll actually come visit my home. I'll just bring out a couple hundred dollar bills and take it all home with me. Yeah. Mm. That or dance for it. You got to work oh, for it. Oh, you're on. Got fuckers. some sturdy tables. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That wraps up. Talk about Brown. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get into business news. News team, assemble! Let's get down, let's get down to business. And I got news for you. Today's business news comes to us from Penn Live. This is a, a funny one to me because I've worked at a McDonald's, so I remember this, but I've also tried to order a shake from McDonald's, and so I'm aware of this. The third part is that it is St. Patty's Day and the eponymous shamrock shake. I haven't had a shamrock shake today. I've never not had one today. Get your ass down there, man, because they're going to go away if the goddamn shake machine works. Uh, Let's get into it. McDonald's sued for $900 million by ice cream machine hackers. McDonald's is being sued. Wait, by who sued who? Okay, Kitch. there we go. Right. McDonald's is being sued by Kitch, K-Y-T-C-H, Kitch, a startup that worked to fix the ice cream machines by inventing a device, according to Wired. Kitch's legal complaint was expected. McDonald's was accused of false advertising. Hence, the startup's co-founders, Melissa Nelson and Jeremy O'Sullivan, are requesting $900 million in damages. Since 2019, Kitch says there was a phone-sized device meant to fix McDonald's ice cream machine issues through installation. The device was meant to intercept each machine's internal communications. It was to be sent out to a smartphone or web interface in order to help owners fix their machines, according to Wired Magazine. Though, in November 2020, McDonald's sent out emails requesting all franchisees remove the device from their machines. In the emails, McDonald's says Kitch's device violated the machine's warranties and intercepted confidential information. Fast food chain also said the device could lead to serious human injury. Kitch denied this claim, calling it defamatory. Nothing is more important to us than food quality and safety, which is why all equipment in McDonald's restaurants is thoroughly vetted before it's approved for use. The statement read, After we learned that Kitch's unapproved device was being tested by some of our franchisees, we held a call to better understand what it was and subsequently communicated a potential safety concern to franchisees. There's no conspiracy here. But is there? Mm-hmm. You know what? I'm on Team McDonald's here. I don't oh. trust these guys. Oh, indeed. I don't trust them. 
I agree. So there's a lot coming through the books right now, uh, oh, homies of mine, about the idea that you can fix your own product without requiring manufacturer-specific service personnel. This and not was, voiding the warranty? Yep. It was enacted on automobiles under the Magnus and Moss Warranty Act, which was a big deal because the idea of you couldn't put on aftermarket brake pads or put a different kind of oil in and void the warranty for your automobile. But there was still the idea of they're not going to release the service manuals to you. It needs to be repaired by an authorized service professional. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to go the way of the dodo probably because Congress is going to vote on the you're allowed to service the product yourself. And what was happening with these McDonald's shake machines, if you talk to a McDonald's franchisee owner, which I did, is that you're not allowed to fix the machine yourself, even if you have access to the information and the tools, because you have to go through their approved service provider. Now, if that doesn't yeah. sound like bullshit rent seeking, I don't know what does. Oh, it's total bullshit. Absolutely. So the yeah. idea is this company, Kitsch, found a solution to the problem, or at least one that mitigated the downtime, and they installed it on their machines and everything seemed to be okay until McDonald's went, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> No, 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 no. And they, you know, they effectively went about threatening the franchisees to remove these devices. And so Kitsch sued them. Well, this practice isn't new. Uh, did I ever tell you the story about when I was out in Denver and I was working for the airline out there and they, uh, do tell. We, we had, uh, we bought new Airbus aircraft. Uh, obviously, Airbus is located out and I think they're based out of France, but, they mm -hmm. most of the components come all over Europe, so I would I would call it a European uh, aircraft maker. But this is no different. All the OEMs actually operate the same. But I remember one specific instance where there was a flagpole at the end of JFK JFK Airport, and because this flagpole existed, it needed certain climb requirements and. To meet those climb requirements, you had to literally, and I mean literally, turn a screw on the engine like three times. I mean, and that made the requirement that all of a sudden recertified it. But the only way to do it was to have their mechanic come unscrew this thing three times. No other trained aircraft mechanic could do it and get it and get it certified when literally that's all that happened. So this is a racket. It's bullshit. It's extortion. And I'm glad that finally somebody's stepping in because it's, it's, it's absolute horseshit. And I'm not even pretty quick about face that. Leon. You were team McDonald's until I gave you my pitch. No, I'm still team McDonald's. I I'm, I'm against this other company that, puts things in that says you can't fix it. Uh, that's that, that still puts me on the team McDonald's side. So Kitsch is the startup that put in a, a little device that helps the franchisee get faster service. Mm -hmm. Because so what you'll find the situation, what you'll, what, well, what you'll find is if you walk into a McDonald's and you say, can I have a milkshake? And they say the machine's busted. And you say, well, when is it going to be fixed? The person behind the counter will just look at you and shrug because they don't know. They've reported it to corporate and corporate is working on it. Hmm. This thing here with Kitsch would tell you, you know, machine's about to break. And so you get on the horn and you go, hey, this thing needs service. And then you're supposed to have a dispatch service technician. Although hmm. when you're dealing with a national service um, organization, they're going to have 
service technicians that are trained and licensed in major metropolitan areas. So if you've got the the McDonald's that's 50 miles outside Boise, Idaho, good luck. You got to get a guy to fly in and then that guy's got to drive out to wherever your bumfuck McDonald's is and fix your shake machine. And it's not likely to happen. But this little device from Kitsch sounds like they've inserted this little thing that talks to your smartphone that says you're getting to the point where the components are too hot or something is about to break. So you could start that process earlier, knowing that it was going to break. And McDonald's came in and said, no way, man. You roll with our shit. Mm, then I'm then I'm anti-McDonald's in that situation. Thank you for explaining that to me. And that's where I call bullshit. I see. So McDonald's is holding them the franchisees hostage in this situation. I think that's what it is. That's that's the argument that I make is the McDonald's is holding the franchisees hostage because they make them buy this shake machine. And then when this shake machine breaks, it has to go through their service provider. Hmm. Yeah, well. You know, I was, I, I'm on that team then, because I agree. That's horseshit. Cock gobblers. Can, yeah. can I interject though? Like, it's just out of curiosity is how, what's your feelings about Tesla? Uh, in, in what capacity? I'm intrigued. So if you buy it, so you, you gentlemen own cars and, you know, you need allegedly. an oil, well, you allegedly, you need maintenance, whether it's brakes or just your routine maintenance on the car. I'm not talking about oil, but just like regular maintenance. Cause you take oil anywhere, but you know, you need some kind of work to mechanic. They turn some wrenches on it. And so like you go down the street and you have an option of, you know, hundreds of different mechanics in your local area that'll work on your car. And you do it through reputation as the reason why you go there. Tesla doesn't work that way. Tesla works where you only can take your Tesla to a Tesla place for repair. You only can, if you're in an accident, you only can take it to a Tesla certified place and have them do it so you are literally this is what musk did is he finally took i own the dealerships i own the manufacturing and i own all the service all at once and mm -hmm. that's kind of it, it it did something that no one's been able to kind of hold on to and do is it basically encapsulated everything in one place it, it's early in stage i think you know you'll see what you know automakers like ford and chevy have been around for a hundred and hundred and few years now, 105 years, but just thinking what, what's your thoughts on that? Then it's, you know, you only can go to one place and you have to take the bill. So here's what I will say. First of all, if that sticks around too long, I would say that's bullshit. Um, but I will say when Tesla came out with what they came out with, there was no denying that the technology they were releasing was far beyond anybody else out there. And if they had to have especially trained mechanics, to do what they had to do, then I get it. But to not allow other certified, I mean, you have to get certified, but oh. if you allow other certified, but the technology was, and you got to understand too, uh, when Tesla came out and what made Tesla so different and where electric vehicles actually became a realistic option for the everyday American that could afford one. I'm not saying everyday Americans can afford one, but a car that somebody didn't feel like it was a, a cracker Jack prize because all the electric vehicles, the leaf and all that. Okay, great. You get 90 miles to a battery. You can only go when there's no headwind, you know, blah, you know, all this bullshit, you know, that went along with the previous electric vehicles. Now 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to premise this with a little bit of conspiracy theory bullshit, <laughs> but I do think that there's some stuff out there. I think that the oil companies did a really good job for a very long time squashing any progress for electric vehicle building until Musk came out and somehow hit a you know home how he run. Did it? I don't think you know that's a conspiracy it? theory. It's a war- He has warranties on his car. That's how he was able to get the buyers to buy. He put yeah. a warranty on it that they'd take it back. So the warranty liability on their financials is just astronomical. When I looked at it, I looked at honestly, it probably seven but, years ago. But the point you're making though, is if you're going to put a warranty like that and exactly. you are trying to gain the trust of the American public, you have to be very guarded on who's allowed to work on these things mm-hmm. because you, again, conspiracy theories, bullshit. You would be very easy to go out there and say that, certain oil people want batteries to explode on people and they want brakes to fail and they want things like that to happen to scare people away from electric vehicles, but that never happened. So in, it, well, I mean, in isolated cases, but I mean, overall at the end of the day, Tesla is a massive success right now. And, and, mm-hmm. and you can't, my guess, and you can't Mr. contest Jay, that. Yeah. I know. My guess is that this is a nascent technology. And I also want to look at the clientele that buys a Tesla, you're looking at a $90,000 sedan, you know, up to mm-hmm. 110 or 120 oh, with yeah. upgrades and, you know, uh, ludicrous speed and all that. And so these are people that are likely to pay whatever, because most of having a Tesla is not saving the world. You can save the world in a Prius and a Leaf. Most of what Tesla is, is, is status. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, virtue signaling, it's scarcity. And so these types of people, they pay whatever they want for the car to have it. And then they pay whatever needs to be done to fix it. I don't think they're going to shop around. That's part one. Well, I'll back off. Oh, hey, can, can I interrupt part one right, now? Good. I think the, st- the status symbol thing, I think, was Tesla, Tesla phase one. Because that technology, the way he decided to roll it out, he knew that it was going to be expensive technology. And so that's the market he went after. And he went after that top 1%. And he kicked ass and he made the brand that it needed to be. But he always, at least the way he explains it, wanted the John Everyman to be able to buy it, right? So uh, that's why he came out, what it was, Model 3 or whatever? I mean, that Mm -hmm. one was supposed to be the affordable vehicle. And when he was talking about the Tesla truck, he pushed the price of that thing more than anything before he broke that window in the demo. So he's really big on not being this brand for elitists only. And I, I don't mean to be defending Musk. I'm not a big Musk defender one way or another. I'm just telling you that the model and the path that he took, he certainly wasn't trying to make this brand a Rolex. You know, he was trying to make it uh, a high quality brand and somehow it worked out. But anyway, sorry, go with phase two. I'm, I'm no, I, don't, I don't think those are contradictory thoughts. I think he wants to bring the Model 3 or whatever the successor to the Model 3 is to the masses. He wants a $30,000 car. Yes. But the circumstances only provided for him to be able to make the expensive car so that he can build up scale so that he can eventually lower the cost. But the idea yep. that I think Mr. Jones is getting to is you have to go to a Tesla certified service provider. And I think that's just because the technology is nascent. I think if you go to areas like San Jose or San Francisco or New York or Oslo, Norway, or places where Teslas are sold in mass, I bet you you'll find a Tesla repair guy who's not under the Tesla banner. And he was probably a former Tesla repair guy that opened up his own shop. And my guess is that in at least in these jurisdictions that don't have these stringent warranty laws, there's nothing you can do. If somebody is Tesla certified, they can work on your car. 
So I think right now, the exclusivity of a Tesla certified technician is just the fact that it's very difficult to get certified, but I don't think it's possible. Well, I, I don't know anything about it, but Mr. Jones seems to, and I, I you can't he's see right. it at home. He's but right. He's, he's been trying to head. avoid he's saying, the automotive no, you're wrong, dealer model baby. in every state except, I think, New Jersey and maybe now West Virginia or some bullshit where you have to buy a car through a dealer. That's fucked up. It's yeah. fucked up. Yeah. Well, we're out of time, but um, I'd like to shelf this one. I'll uh, I'll come back with more intel on the on the structure and what you can and can't do if you own a Tesla. I think it's an interesting concept. Um, obviously, like there is the total, you know, vertical integrated model of business, whereby if you were a winery, you own the vineyards, you own the crush pad, you own the, you know, all of your winemaking tools, you own your barrels, you own everything all the way down. And then you have your distributor chain and so forth. You own the whole thing. That's extremely rare to do. It is done. But this uh, idea of basically owning the whole thing is you're not, you're not giving away margin, you're owning it all. And it's a great, it's a great growth platform. Auto is different. Every, every industry is different, but we'll, Complete we'll continue. Vertical integration is the Holy grail of business. I think mm -hmm. the, what this article is bringing up is you can't lock customers out. You can't penalize them for finding outside solutions. Mm -hmm. Excellent conversation. I like it. <laughs> Let's get to the crank file. I could look for something in the crank file. Crank file. Whatever. Today's crank file comes to us from Cheddar.com. Authorities seize nearly $3 million worth of meth in onions. The article begins, authorities seized nearly $3 million worth of methamphetamine hidden among a shipment of onions during a tractor trailer's inspection at a federal facility in San Diego. This Officials seems like when people hide Friday. weed in coffee already. Is that what's going on here? Go ahead. Well, you might be uh, you might be jumping the gun, Leon, but I'm with it. Okay. Onions might throw off the dogs. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. A canine unit for the U.S. Customs and Border Protection alerted to the trailer's shipment of onions on Sunday, and officers found nearly 1,200 small packages of meth. The agency said Friday in a news release. 46-year-old driver. Uh, yeah, that, that basically says you're wrong. 46-year-old <laughs> driver, a Mexican national who was not named was arrested for the alleged narcotic smuggling attempt at the Ote Mesa Port of Entry Commercial Vehicle <laughs> Facility. I we have not been Ote. to Ote Mesa, I don't think, have we? <laughs> Ote. We've been to San Isidro. I think we've been to mm -hmm. Nogales. What are some other areas we've been across the border at? But I don't think. I don't know. What's the one? one? What's the one south of Brawley? Do you know? Nope. No. We've been Could to be that one. one. But we certainly have not been to Ote Mesa. Nope. The package is a meth more than 1,300 pounds, 606 kilograms for those of you outside the United States, were shipped into small globes with a white covering, the agency said, and meant to blend into the onions. Oh, that's genius. They it hid is. Pokemon balls inside the onions. Mm -hmm. While we have certainly seen narcotics and produce before, it's unusual for us to see this level of detail in concealment. Well done, meth onion people. But you lost about three mil on the street. Mm. Well, this happened the day yeah. before Valentine's Day, too. Oh, Not man. a lot of love. Not a lot of love. Yeah, I, I think, do you remember Dennis Leary when he did a stand-up? And one of my favorite parts of his stand-up was, I didn't stop doing 
I didn't stop doing drugs because I didn't like them. It's because drugs don't lead to other drugs. They lead to fucking carpentry. (laughs) It's like people are like, Oh, that apple would make an excellent bong. That car would make an excellent bong. That guy's head would make an excellent bong. You just start creating different ways of doing drugs. Before you know it, you're making bongs out of everything. These these people and their ingenuity have created look-alike onions uh, in packaging. I think they probably spent more on the packaging and shipping than they ever would have to make this drug. That is pretty so, clever. I mean, they took they took this white heat shrink material probably and they shrinked up the meth but unfortunately you didn't pack it in coffee grounds go back and watch beverly hills cop you gotta throw like off the dogs we need to get these drug dealers out there to help us cure cancer they're the smartest people on the planet we just need to we just need to get them <laughs> working on working for the right cause that's what it is it's a it's poor recruiting practices thank you leon No, it's, it's, it's definitely one of those things where, you know, you keep, I I keep them coming. I I love these ways that people have tried to hide smuggle it. Smuggling has been around for eternity. It's not, it's not new. Just the ways to smuggle is always being innovative and new. And I love it. I love reading about it. I love how, how these different uh, I mean, nobody likes when they're like putting them in people's bodies and, you know, yeah, that's pushing them across where that, that's bad. I mean, there's a line to cross, but if you're, if you're basically mimicking an onion then then I'm all for it, that's hilarious. High marks for creativity. Yes. High marks for creativity. They get a gold star. That wraps up the crank file. Let's get on to because Florida. Today's Because Florida comes to us from the Sun Sentinel. South Florida Publix customer shot to death after argument in checkout line. Now that's Publix, P-U-B-L-I-X. For those of you outside the state of Florida, Publix is a supermarket. Mm-hmm. This one happened in Coral Gables. An mm. argument in the checkout line of a South Florida grocery store escalated into a fatal shooting. The argument between two men started in the checkout line of a Publix on Saturday evening in the upscale neighborhood of Coral Gables, known for its Mediterranean-style mansions and the home of University of Miami, the U. Home of home of Bacardi. Bacardi's in Coral Gables. Mm-hmm. See, they should be drinking. Instead, they're bringing guns into the grocery store and picking fights in line. Oh, look at this one. Osmel Lugo Gutierrez, 51, has been arrested and charged with murder after shooting a man in the line for lotto tickets. Around 6.15 p.m. at the Publix, located at 106 Ponce de Leon Boulevard. During the argument, Gutierrez pulled a 9mm Glock 19 from his waistband and shot Franklin Jose Pinero, 49, once in the chest, killing him, according to an arrest report posted by the TV station. Pinero took a step towards Gutierrez, who then immediately fired his gun. After he was arrested, police say Gutierrez told them the victim was unarmed. Police also said in their report that security cameras inside the public's captured video of the entire incident. A public spokesperson released a statement about the shooting, according to the radio, to the TV station. Our thoughts are with those who are impacted by this tragedy. We are cooperating with local law enforcement. Since this is an active police investigation, we cannot confirm any additional details, which is basically 
fluff. Well done. Something happened. We know about it. We're not saying shit. Well done. That's PR 101 right there, people. Well, let's, let's jump into a heavy subject. Uh, being Florida, I believe this is being Florida. It's got to be concealed carry state, right? It's got to yeah, be. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So it makes you wonder. I don't, I don't have a concealed carry. I could have gotten one in Ohio. I didn't get one. Obviously in California, I'm not sure I'm even allowed to have a, a sharp pointy pencil in my pocket. I can so, get one here in Arizona. Yeah, I'm sure you can. Um, but I think, um, I don't know how the rules work and maybe the magic 25 do, but at what point when you have one of those, and I'm not even saying any of these people actually had them, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but when are you allowed to and acceptably allowed to draw your weapon and defend yourself you would assume that it's somewhere along the lines of when you feel threatened or your life feels threatened and could that happen in a matter of a second or two who yes right i i guess that could happen i don't know uh obviously the scenario doesn't seem like it warrants a gunfight <laughs> but <laughs> we were you know, I've seen much worse. We've seen much worse, right? We watch professional baseball players, uh, professional football players, professional hockey players uh, have massive fights in the middle of a game. You know, emotions get the best of all of Road us. But it's, and at some point, I think, you know, if you ever feel threatened and you have a concealed carry, I think that's when the gun comes out and people get shot. And I think... Uh, it's both good, meaning it's supposed to be a deterrent about against aggressive behavior, but obviously it doesn't seem to work in this scenario. And this is where the bad comes in. And I think a lot of people that are anti-gun and I'm not saying one way or the other, which way I, I'm for, I'm just saying that if you're anti-gun, this is a perfect scenario. And if, if neither one of these people had a gun, you'd have two living people at the end of this with probably black eyes. So, and one person with a lottery ticket that's worthless. The part that stuck out to me was 51 and 49. What kind of action are you getting in at this age? I'm not going to get into the fact that it was a nine millimeter Glock 19. And I think a Glock 19 is a very specific type of weapon doesn't say anything about concealed carry just said he pulled it from his waistband the idea that the other guy was unarmed and the killer admitted that the other guy was unarmed makes you wonder was there something else going on here like this this didn't seem like I'm missing a piece just an argument over a lottery ticket unless it's florida because you know we like to make fun of florida but this just seems like egregious because there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in florida with human trafficking and drugs and coming over from miami and other Caribbean nations. I don't, I don't want to talk about all the kids that go missing because of alligators and shit. This seemed a little bit way over the top such that it made the because Florida segment because a 51 year old shoots a 49 year old who was unarmed with a Glock 19 in a supermarket. Now this is the shittiest game of clue that I have ever seen. <laughs> Fair enough. I, and I'm not denying that. I'm not denying that it one way or another. I think absolutely the scenario should have never, never happened. And this seems very Florida. And 
in the environment it happens. I can't help but picture while you're de- while you were describing it. I know you you opened with it's in public. You described what a Publix was, but as soon as you went into the scenario with lottery ticket and all that, I went right to like an inner city. I pictured the whole event happening in That's inner the city. Thing. Like this is a uh, Publix like and Coral Gables. Store, this might as well be know? a Whole Foods in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. Coral Gables is a really nice area. Very nice area. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, it's, it's, yeah, Florida, you, you knock it out of the park. I'm constantly scratching my head and that's hard to do these days. So, um, do you, are you, uh, Jones is back. He just, he has doesn't seem like he wants to say anything. He's probably smart. <laughs> yeah. It's Florida. I don't know. It's <laughs> Florida. Succinct. Classy. I, I, well done, I Mr. Just, Jack. Yes. It's Florida. I thought I'd go out to the family of Mr. Gutierrez, 49. Uh, Mr. Gutierrez was the gunman. So our thoughts go out to Franklin Jose Pinero and his family. We're very sorry. That wraps up because Florida. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get into parenting. We can make kids right now. That's why we're here. It's not the years, It's the mileage. Because it is St. Patty's Day, it's very likely that there will be a lot of children made tonight. And so I pulled this one from flowingdata.com. The age of moms when kids are born. People have kids at a wide range of ages, but the moments tend towards where we are in life. There are social norms and biological norms. Based on data from the National Center for Health Statistics, we can see how these ranges shifted by child number. So, first child, when mothers have their children in the United States, the median age, such that we're looking at a bell curve here, which is kind of a flat bell curve for first child, basically from 20 to 30, 2% of births from 2016 to 2020 are when most women have their first child. After 30, it starts to slope off on a natural distribution curve. And then you can see uh, the teenage pregnancies, it kind of ramps up really quick. They have 12 on here. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I am happy that 12 is zero. But it looks like 13 and 14 are edging up. So the United States is not without its teen pregnancy problem. As you move on to the second child, you get more of a regular distribution curve with a nice curved middle and flat tails on either side. And so your average age for the second child kind of starts to hit its stride around 29. So your median for the first child is 27 and your median for the second child is 29. And so it seems based on this data, it's boom, boom, boom. Then you scroll down a little bit. Third child is 30. Your fourth child is 31. Your fifth child is 32. So, anybody listening, ladies that you know or that are 27, clock's ticking. <laughs> We've literally just looked at the inside of the biological clock. We know where it is. Yep. We got all the gears. We know how it runs. We know how it works. The article continued, based on live births between 2016 and 2020, the median age of first-time moms was 27. 
and the median age of moms having more children gets older than that. It seems about right, but you can also see the medians are a small sliver of the whole. Now, I thought this was interesting because there's two theories at work here. One, you could do the traditional generational thing of the millennials versus the Gen Z versus the boomers versus the Gen X. The other part of that theory is the every other generation theory, right? So if you're old when you have kids, your kids are going to rebound and have kids young. If you're young when you have kids, your kids are going to rebound and have kids when they're old. Now, in my particular case, I am the youngest and my parents had children at 20. Growing up, I didn't want to have kids at 20 on purpose, which is why I didn't have kids until I was 30. And I think that says something because where you have children in your life cycle, in my opinion, will affect how you view the art and the act of having children, such that when you communicate with your children about having kids, they remember how you react to it. So one end of this theory is maybe if you have kids later in life, you go, oh, you know, we had all this life and now we're old and it's difficult for us to raise you once you get older because we're slower, we have less energy. And so your kids go, well, my parents are old. I don't want to have to deal with that. So then they have kids young. Flip side of that is we had kids way too young. We didn't have any money. We struggled. So what do you guys think about those two sides of the coin? I mean, I hear your ping pong and both of those make a lot of sense. This is one of those things where I think that you have to, there's just so many different external factors applying to this, right? And I think for me personally, and and, and my parents did have me young as well. Uh, I think my mom was 21 and I already had an older sister at that time. So it was very different. It's hard to comprehend having kids that young. But guess what they were able to do at that age? Afford a home, right? And we can't. So I think I think there's on some level, and I know that this is a, a constant conversation topic. And how do how do we get people to be able to if if people have a home and a safe place and a and a, a job, right? Then they'll feel more comfortable in growing a family. And sometimes you don't you don't have that ability, right? And sometimes you get the whoops. And that's okay too, right? And the whoops is different than a planned. I wish, I wish it was possible to see these charts as far as planned versus not planned, but uh, I, I know that's almost impossible. But I think, Danny, when you're talking about it, your kids were as planned as they could be on some level, right? Like you, you probably you got married. You both said, "I want kids." You probably made some official decision to say we're pulling the goalie let's let's have some kids uh, at least that's that's what we had right and i think that's common uh once you get into that 28 to 34 range where you have you don't have any kids yet but if you have the ability and you feel like you are in a position where you can raise kids you know I think society plays a part, a stronger part than what you were talking about, which is how you were raised. I think society giving you the ability to safely raise a kid at the age. And once you're age appropriate to do it, that's when it happens. That's how I feel about that's it. A good point. Mr. Jumps brought this up in episode 52 where, you know, it's just getting expensive to have a kid. So people aren't having them. Mm -hmm. Exactly it. 
I think Leon hit it where, you know, there's people that have lesser means financially, educationally, and so forth that, you know, they, you know, would probably maybe fall to the other end of it where, you know, they've had to make their career choices earlier in life versus, you know, people that are more well off where they get to go to college and uh, intern or whatever the case may be and, you know, more planned life. And so everything becomes more planned in the sense of, okay, I bought a house and now I want to have kids and marriage and all that other stuff. So it's a, it's an interesting thing. I guess it's kind of, I would definitely, the truth is, is that people are having kids later in life. That's, that's well-documented. I mean, that's pretty much what this is showing in, um, you know, versus our parents, which I think all, all of us had all had parents that had had us in their twenties. Um, whereas like I had a kid when I'm in my forties. So there you go. That's how you have it. Well, I think it would be really cool to, to see the same analysis over time, which I'm sure exists on, are we shifting farther later down the years? Have you, every time I think about this, have you seen that one movie? Um, oh my God, I'm brain farting on it, but it's got Owen Wilson in it. Um, and he goes back, he, he gets in a, a time capsule why am I? Everyone's like probably the top twenty-five are like <laughs> Magic Twenty-five are like I know that movie. Um, anyway, the whole premise of the movie, right or wrong, it's a little bit hilarious, but there's probably some truth that the people, the human race in general, starts to lose intelligence over time. Oh, you're talking about uh, idiocracy. Idiocracy. Thank you. Geez, that was hard to remember <laughs> because that movie's awesome. Because people who are, um, for lack of better term, less educated, uh, don't have the means, typically have more, mm. more kids, and people that are more educated and have more uh, affluence or ability to, you know, I don't know. I don't know how else to label it, but have, have more money and, and more time and more focus maybe to, to raise the kids. They have one or two when in, in versus five or six. So eventually the population will start to overcome and the population starts to go that way. And I don't, I don't necessarily believe it, but it's, it's actually very, very funny uh look at where people are and what their mindsets are when they decide that they want to have kids i can't wait to see the numbers of the covid babies right everybody was locked up yeah we got one we got one can i get two gonna get a two gonna get a two 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 we got one sex is free yeah so everyone's locked up so you're either going to strangle each other or you're going to make a baby so I want to know I the divorce rate. I want to know the divorce rate also. It's higher than it's ever been. It's higher than it's yeah, ever been. That I do there, know. There's a lot of things that happened over lockdown where it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's in a good way or a bad way. Yeah. More marriage proposals, more divorces, more kids, more yeah. bad, more good, but more closure in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. Right. Yeah, I just think there's a lot of external forces. Um, I don't mean to poo-poo your theory. I think it's, I think you're, it's absolutely, Danny, a major contributing factor. It's just not the only one. 
If you have the means to control when you have children, it definitely makes sense that you would be educated about it and decide when you want to bring a child into the world, Leon. So if you're not educated enough and you don't have the means, you're going to have more kids because sex is free. So I, I, th- I think there's room for both of our theories, but I think you, you made a very good argument. And with that, we come to the end of parenting. Leon, mm-hmm. are you ready? I am. So far, Danny, I haven't heard a single logical reason. No, no, don't accept this. It's frustrating. And we haven't cured cancer. We have not cured cancer. I don't know the answer. I'm just ranting about it. Leon, the floor is yours. We've talked in the past about what I do. I've been drinking from a fire hose when it comes to being a landlord. I find the whole industry incredibly fascinating. One thing that I am still choking on, and I get it. I get how it happened on on some level, but I'm going to introduce this story and then you're going to know where I'm coming from. (laughs) I have an elevator in one of my properties. I actually have two in that single property. The elevator, I have regular service done. You have to do this. The state requires it, right? Everyone's like, yes, I'm glad the state requires elevators to be safe. I'm glad that when I step into an elevator, I don't need to worry about falling to my death. I think we all can agree to that. I'm not denying that. Yes, we should do that. Okay. We're all on the same page. The problem is that there's these niche safety areas where the barriers to entry are so robust and almost impossible that it make it really, really turns monopolies in areas that are servicing these air, these items. I'm talking about fire sprinklers. I'm talking about elevators. I'm talking about things that are safety related. There is less than a handful of, of groups that will do this. And they had to go through so many damn hoops and they had to pay so much to get to where their certification and they still have to constantly go through all of these hoops that cost so much that by the time it gets passed down to the consumer, when I have an elevator door that's not working properly, it costs me almost four grand to fix. Ooh, that's asinine. That isn't realistic. It doesn't help society. You're not, you're not providing a value anymore. You've actually detracted. I'm a good landlord. I believe in safety and I will spend money to do it. But when you have those types of numbers coming down the pipe, you are literally asking everyone to cheat. You are asking people (laughs) to ignore and find workarounds and do things that are, are not um, kosher. And that is the reality of things. When you make trying to be the legal law abiding safety citizen, 
financially impossible, all you end up doing is encouraging people to go the other route just so they can stay above water. Luckily for us, we're much better businessmen than that, and we can still do both. My my main complaint here is that the regulations just keep piling on and piling on and piling on. And so that everybody gets a little bit more hand in their pot. I mean, the hands, the government hands in the pot, all the people that are reaching in to get a part of this is asinine. And so that when somebody needs to have that done, fire sprinklers, let me talk about fire sprinklers for a minute. I've got like three vendors in Orange County that can do it. It's crazy. Three. Right. And all of them charge enormous amount of money. It's plumbing guys. Hey, it's fucking plumbing. It's a pipe that sprays water into this thing and it distributes water. That's all it does. It's not rocket science, but the, but the certifications required to do this are so ridiculously the barriers to entry are so ridiculously hard and the certifications are so fucking expensive to get there that by the time the consumer, me, needs to get something like a sprinkler fixed, it costs somewhere between $800 to $1,000 to fix, which is so dumb. And I'm not allowed to do it because it's a safety, uh, safety thing. So you're just asking people to cheat. That's what you're asking people to do. At some point, that's what's going to happen because everyone goes into survival mode at some point, right? So if it just keeps escalating to this point, especially in an inflationary period like this, there, there's just no way to get it done. And when I was trying to, uh, you know, there's a great product uh, out there. I'm not going to pitch them specifically, but basically they spray a, a very thin type of epoxy that goes into pipes and it kind of reinforces the pipe. So leaks yeah, the don't happen anymore. Goes. Yeah, well, there's repipe. Repipe is basically completely taking pipes out and running them side by side and turning the water off. And then you basically completely repipe. But there's another one. I think they call it e-pipe or something like that. And they go in and they go into the existing pipe and they reinforce the pipe. Not only is that an amazing product, but also it uh, it reduces the impact on all the tenants because they don't have to go through all the rigmarole that you would go through a repipe cutting in, cutting into your walls and the mess and the dust and the, and all the different inspections and left and right. And it's epoxy, right? So it's not dealing with metal. That's right. It's epoxy. And so it's certified in many different parts in the state of California, but also someplace it's not. And it's because when you talk to them, they haven't jumped through the multi hundred thousand dollar hoops of certification and paid off the right government people to get the licensing to do it. And it's that is where the system is broken. It's broken. It's not right. Everyone wants to be safe. I agree. I don't have an again. I don't have an answer. I don't know how to make everyone safe, but also make it economically possible for people to do the right thing too. You have to understand that incentive is the most powerful thing anybody operates on, right? That's why salespeople exist, right? That was the smartest person in the world figured out. If you give salespeople a piece of the pie, they're going to sell a hell of a lot more, right? Once you start getting these incentive-based you know, theories, uh, incentives going out there where people want to do things, then you're going to see that. But right now, the incentive is to do the wrong thing. 
And I, 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 I won't do it, but I can see how the industry completely does it. And it's very frustrating because there is no hope. I don't think there's any hope that anyone's going to step in and say, we want less regulation in these areas because it makes you sound like you want people to die and you want people to get hurt when really all you want is to be more economical, to be safe. You know, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a balance. So that's, that's all I have to say. And that's, that's my world specifically, but it really frustrated me today because I know this repair will take $200 in parts and one hour in labor. And it's going to cost me four grand. And that's frustrating. I'm going to leave this one alone, Leon. Mm-hmm. So, um, safety is a tough one because you want safety. If I had to say anything based on what you're saying is I am not a big fan of barrier to entry. So there was two things that you said. One was there's a limited number of players in the market. You said that it was very difficult to get the certification, but you also said the certification was very expensive. Mm-hmm. The certification being very expensive, that's a government problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm all about high standards. I'm all about government impetus on safety. I'm all about protecting residents. But the idea of this is a safety protocol that you want people to adopt, you don't want a barrier to entry. If there's stringent requirements, sure. They got to pass the test three times before they get it. Totally acceptable. But when you place a high cost on certification, yeah, that gets back to your incentive argument. You're begging people to cut corners or break the rules. Good love tonight, Leon. Mr. J, you got anything? You know, no. I think uh, I understand where Leon's coming from. Um, I think that's the truth is, is that there's always places to cut corners, and I think there's too much red tape to things. Um, in my industry i deal with uh there are rules you have to follow said rules or you get in trouble and these rules are extremely expensive um but they keep things in check in my world um if they don't they can create catastrophic economic you know impacts and that's what we've seen in the past so uh i can't speak to leon's issue but um yeah man it it's sometimes you know, you have to follow the rules. And, um, if you try to cut corners, well, in my world, you go to jail, but in, you know, other areas, you my don't have too. the consequences. Yeah, you could. Yeah. I mean, and people get, and even worse, people get hurt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be the worst. That's the worst case. I don't think, well, sometimes people get hurt. It's more financially, but I, I always try to be above board to whatever I do, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to see today where everybody has their hand in your pocket. It's, it's just, it's, it's so ridiculous today in this world. Um, it would seem with the number of buildings in your area alone that have fire sprinklers to only have three licensed contractors. There's certainly demand and mm-hmm. in a vacuum in a capitalist society, demand is going to get filled with supply. If there are people that refuse to satisfy that demand because of what they foresee as an unreasonable barrier to entry, that is a fail on the part of the person imposing the rules, in this case, the government. So I will say, if yeah. fire safety is important to you and the certification is cost prohibitive, you got to drop the price. 
the issue with taking today is probably need to say this too, is it the demand right now and anything that has to do with building something, it's just skyrocketing. Um, yeah. and, and, and it's, it, it absolutely sucks. And I, I I'm only going to, you know, look at it, maybe taking a step back. Cause like, why did this happen? And the issue is, is that, you know, we don't, as a society here in California or the U S we don't give enough credit to trade schools. We don't give enough credit to people to learn a trade, to build and to do a career path. We just say, go to college. Well, that was fucking mess. I'm a liberal arts major with nowhere to do. And I'm going to go down to Venice and play my guitar. I mean, it's just, it's just sad that there is a lot of lost time that is given in too much, um, too much emphasis on kids going to school where they could be more focused to the trades, which is where I'm hoping one day we actually do crack that nut and we do build more trades and we build more of a structure of apprenticeship and, um, journeyman and then into these other trades because maybe that will fix some of these problems i mean but i think today in this society that we're in in this economics is that it's always done by we hire people at low level wage and we charge them four times the amount for them to go do the same work as anybody else and you know that's how they come up in this world well i think you nailed it jones i think i think you nailed it because i think we need to as a society encourage and promote the trades they're so important and as more and more things happen where it's like how can i work from home well you can't work from home and be a plumber and you can't work from home and be an electrician and you can't work from home and be a fire sprinkler technician so they're not sexy and if they're not sexy in school then they're almost like who's the one that's raising their hand saying that's what i want to be and it's 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 partly our fault. Like we should be like, whenever I ever encounter the, any of these people that work um, with us, I, I am so appreciative because that job is hard. I mean, they're compensated well for it, but the job is hard and I appreciate what they're doing and it's, it's tough. It's tough work. So my, my guess is that it's the tide is starting to turn. Now, again, the future's here. It's just not very well distributed. You're not going to see this en masse, I don't think. But with what Google's doing, Google says 300 bucks, six months, you'll get a job. You're going to start seeing micro certifications at a lot of these universities. I know that Arizona State's doing it. They're like quadrupling their virtual classrooms. Um, our uh, our mutual friend Gabby's going to the graduate school of business at Stanford virtually. Mm-hmm. Fucking goddamn well done, man. So there mm-hmm. there are going to be outlets available that don't incorporate a traditional four-year on-campus liberal arts education. And I believe I, I believe this truly. I'm not this this is not one of my philosophical moments. I believe that that's going to trickle its way down. You're going to have these micro certifications. Now is the days of the apprentice journeyman master going to stick around? I don't think so. I think you're going to get a kid coming in that's going to want to learn a trade like plumbing or electricity or carpentry. And I don't think you're going to have that apprentice journeyman kind of mojo. I think they're going to get in, they're going to learn it, they're going to get their certification, they're going to go out and do whatever they want to do. Or you might see consolidation, just a lot of carpenters or a lot of electricians. But I, I definitely see the idea of get in, get educated, get out, get your certification, move on. I definitely see that 
pendulum swinging back. So the traditional route of a trade school, quote unquote, probably not. But the short-term micro-certification of education and certification, I think that's coming and it's coming in a wave. Yeah, I'd like to see it. I'd like to see it too. Let's hope I'm right. Well done, Leon. Let's get to the bottom of the bottle. This bitch is empty. Yeet! Two little notes as we round third. It is St. Patrick's Day, named after the patron saint of Ireland in the 4th century. The word for today is Hibernian. It's an adjective, means of or concerning Ireland, usually referring to people. Colin Farrell is a Hibernian. When you think of somebody from Dublin or from Cork or from Killarney or for Dunleary, they are Hibernian people. So if you happen to know an Irishman, specifically a native that's got a brogue, or you find somebody of heavy Irish descent, you can refer to them as Hibernian on this day. And since we're filming on St. Patrick's Day, you're not listening to this on St. Patrick's Day, but you can go back and you can say, hey, man, remember that time we hung out last week? You're a fucking kick-ass Hibernian, man. And I think they'll enjoy it. Second piece of wisdom I give you is an Irish blessing because it is St. Patrick's Day here as we celebrate. And the blessing goes like this. May your troubles be less, your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness come through your door. And I wish all of you listening to the Bottle of Brown podcast, all you Bobs out there, and I speak on behalf of our vice hosts, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. And if you haven't already, slantcha. That's our show. You can email us at bottleofbrown.com or bottleofbrown at gmail.com. Call us at 602-529-4562. Leave a message for Danny, Leon, or Mr. Jones. We'll play it on the air. Give us ideas for content or refute anything we say on the show. If you like the show, please like, follow, subscribe, and share with a friend, most importantly. We're on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share a drink with us next episode. Same brown time, same brown channel. Bottleofbrown.com. This place is dead anyway, man.